Very good to be with you this morning. Um, as uh, Pastor Clive said, I'm one of the uh, deacons here at the church, and it's my privilege this morning to share the word of the Lord with you. Would you please open up your Bibles to John chapter 10, verse 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 1. You'll see from your outlines that the title of my sermon is Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Now I realize in raising this question, uh, it can take our study in all kinds of different directions. And we have to be careful to strike a fine balance because on the one hand we can get so emotional and our feelings uh, can almost begin to override God's truth. But on the other hand, we can get so philosophical and, uh, and intellectual about the question that we forget that we're dealing with real human struggles. So philosophers call this the problem of evil and the attempts by theologians to explain how a good God can allow evil and suffering is called uh, theodicy. Now I've given you the, the definition there in your uh, outline because it's good to learn some theological words every now and then. But of course, I cannot uh, hope to cover every single aspect of this question this morning. Uh, there's a lot of material, um, and, and hundreds of books have been written on this question, and I only have an hour and a half to preach this morning. <laughs> it's a joke, it's a joke. So that's why I, I worked really hard this week uh, to prepare this outline and have it ready for you today, uh, so that you can keep it with you and follow along. But my hope is also that you'll uh, keep it with you as a small reference, so that if you ever get asked this question, then you have something that you can quickly look at to remind yourself. Now, there's a lot of points on there, but I'm going to spend uh, more time on some of the points than on others, especially as we lay the foundation from our passage before we tackle this difficult question. So my prayer is really that today's sermon will encourage you and will strengthen you as you are reminded of God's love of his goodness, of his provision, and his care for his people. So let us pray before we read from Holy Scripture together. Oh Lord, we stand with the psalmist this morning and we say, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Please help us, O oh Lord, to focus on your word this morning. Amid all the turmoil, the uncertainty, and the stresses of life, may our ears and our hearts be open to receive from you through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. May I be just a tool in your hand, and may you, through the ministry of the Word, make us more like your Son, Jesus Christ, for whose name's sake we ask it. Amen. So before we dig in this morning, let's first look at the context of this passage. Uh, Jesus has been busy teaching uh, the Jewish people that had gathered to hear him, and among them were some of the Pharisees. And they started questioning him after he healed a blind man. And then chapter 10 begins with a parable, after which Jesus, with clear reference to an Old Testament scripture, Ezekiel 34, verse 1 to 24, denounces the Jewish leaders, because they were supposed to be uh, the shepherds of God's people, Israel. 
but instead they actually became the enemies of God's people. They were supposed to faithfully lead the people, protect them from the errors of false doctrine and idolatry. But they either abandoned the flock to the wolves or they exploited them and they used them for their own financial, political or religious ends. Jesus then goes on to explain how he himself is the good shepherd of his sheep. So let's read together uh, from John 10 verse 1. Uh, I'll be reading from the modern English version. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some other way, is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will never follow a stranger, but will run away from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus told them this parable, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Then Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away. So the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because he is a hired hand and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known by my own. Even as the Father knows me, so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must also bring them, and they will hear my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. I received this command from my Father. So wow, what a beautiful picture of Jesus' care and love for his people. So for his sheep, this passage is a wonderful and comforting piece of news. But not everyone sees it that way. Let's look at verse 19. Therefore there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? What? Why would anyone react this way to what Jesus just said? I'll tell you why. Because for the sheep, this is good news. But for the enemies of the sheep, for the enemies of God's people, this is terrible news. Okay? Jesus himself will be the shepherd of his people. He will lead them. He will guide them. He will protect them. They're no longer soft and easy targets for the schemes of their enemies. Okay? No longer are they abandoned to be slaughtered by the wolves. So even though he's not addressed directly in this passage, if this is bad news for the enemies of God and of his people, it's certainly bad news for the ultimate enemy of God and his people, the devil. Those who belong to Jesus 
uh, need not fear what schemes the devil can come up with. We don't have to be afraid of what influence he can exert over the unbelievers in this world. They can face him boldly in Jesus. Now wait, Brother Louis, uh, both Ezekiel 34 and John 10 are addressed to Jewish audiences. So how does this passage apply to us as Gentile believers? I want to say you ask some very good questions. Verse 16 says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must also bring them in and they will hear my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. That's us. That's the Gentiles. Where we read in Acts 10 verse 45, where Peter was with Cornelius, it says all the believers of the circumcision, who were the Jews, who had come with Peter were astonished because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. And Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11 to 13 Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, were called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision in the flesh by human hands, were at that time apart from Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So this good news of his exceedingly great love, his mercy and his grace, uh, Jesus extends to us as well. If we belong to him, then he is our shepherd as well. I think it's important to, for us to realize that uh, when we see Jesus making this promise, that he has the power to keep his promise. It's an important point because I'm blessed to have many people in my life who have uh, wanted to care for me and keep me from harm and protect me. You know, my grandparents, my parents, my wife. But they're all human beings just like me. And even though they are sincere, they're limited in the, the amount and the quality of protection that they can offer me. And if Jesus was just a man, if he was just a good teacher who was, uh, you know, had good intentions and he wrote this beautiful poem about uh, how he wants to be our shepherd, then we would still be in the same boat. Okay, because he would be dead in the grave. But Jesus wasn't just a man. He was God who took on human flesh and he came and dwelt among us. So in his humanity, he can identify with our struggles and our weaknesses. But in his divinity, he has the power to keep his promise because he rose from the dead and he is eternal and almighty. And none can stand against him. Romans 8.31 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? Answer, no one. Verse 10 says, The thief does not come except to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So Jesus is not only talking about preserving our life and keeping us safe, he imparts life to us. He gives life. He's a never-ending, unfailing source um, of abundant life. Okay, Brother Louis, so if all of this is true, if Jesus is our shepherd and we can find comfort and protection and abundant life in him, why am I sick? Why do I have family members or friends who reject the gospel and are lost? Why do I have such financial struggles? Doesn't God see that I'm doing the best I can to try and follow him? Why do bad things happen to good people? 
It's Tim Keller tells of a young lady in his church who came to see him because she was struggling with this fact. She told him, look, I know God loves me, that Jesus died and rose for my sins, and that I'm going to heaven when I die. But what use is all of that when boys won't even look at me? In other words, yes, the gospel is wonderful and it's important, but, but what practical value does it have for the struggles of everyday life? I have problems, I have needs, and it seems that I must look elsewhere than the gospel for help. So I think it's crucial as we look at the question, why do bad things happen to good people, that we start with the question, do we understand the gospel? Do we understand the gospel? Because if we make the gospel message all about ourselves, then we miss the point. You know, there were plenty of sheep in Israel during those times. They were a dime a dozen, as they say. King Solomon alone slaughtered 120,000 sheep at the dedication of the temple. There was nothing special about being a sheep. Sheep are dumb, and they are easily panicked and scattered. So if you think that the reason that Jesus saved you was because you are so wonderful, and you are so precious, and you are so special that he just had to have you then you've got the wrong understanding of the gospel. Because that belief leads to an attitude that says, okay, Jesus, now I'm saved. I need to reap the benefits. So no more struggles and problems for me. Just bring on the blessings. But God doesn't need you. And God doesn't need me. He doesn't need anything. We are saved by His grace, His mercy, His love. In other words, we are saved not because of who we are, but because of who He is. The gospel is not that we were innocent little lambs and then Jesus saved us. No, all humans have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. We were all rebel sinners who had turned our back on our Creator God and we deserved, deserved, deserved death for our treachery. We deserved death. So when viewed through the lens of the gospel, the question, why do bad things happen to good people, becomes... Why do good things happen to anyone? Why do good things happen to anyone? Because we deserve nothing but God's wrath and condemnation. And yet the message of the gospel is that while we were enemies of God, with no thought of bowing our knee to His Lordship, while we were enjoying our rebellion against Him, Jesus died on the cross in our place. He took the punishment and death that should have been ours. And he made it possible for us to become sons and daughters of God. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. But Brother Louis, is the gospel not, you know, the basics? That which we hear at the beginning before we go on to the deeper and higher truths. No. No, we must never outgrow the gospel. The gospel is what should bring us to our knees daily in worship, in humility, and in thankfulness to God. Look at verse 3. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. The sheep hear his voice. Listen how beautifully the commentator John Gill uh, puts it. The shepherd's voice, even the voice of Christ, is none other than the gospel, which is a voice of love, grace, and mercy, which proclaims peace, pardon, liberty, life, righteousness, and salvation, and which is a soul-quickening, alluring, delighting, refreshing, 
and comforting voice. That's a voice that we can never grow tired of. That is the truth that we should always remind ourselves of. So am I saying that if we understand the gospel, we will never have any sickness or pain or heartache? Or that believers are not allowed to have any struggles? No. I'm saying that we should always view these struggles and our pains and our needs through the lens of the gospel. What we have received from God versus what we deserved to receive from Him. This will give us a proper perspective on our situation and it will help us not to doubt God's goodness. Because you see, we as Christians are so often tossed about like waves. It's going well, Jesus loves me. It's going bad, He's angry with me. Back and forth. He's angry, He loves me. He's angry, He loves me. We need to understand the gospel and to delight in it daily. Verse 7, John 10, Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So the invitation is this morning. If you wish to belong to this flock, come to Jesus. Enter through the door. My friends, Jesus is extending this invitation of salvation to you today. If you will repent and turn away from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. We look at our next point. Well then, what does it mean to have abundant life? In verse 10 we read that the thief does not come except to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Now many prosperity preachers quote this verse and they say that abundant life means abundant riches or possessions or abundant health or basically abundant everything that you want. But that's not what this verse means because you can have everything you want and still be miserable. The fact is we as human beings often have unrealistic expectations when it comes to life and so we actually set ourselves up for disappointment. But an abundant life, according to the Bible, is a life that is lived no longer under God's condemnation, but under His forgiveness. It's a walking in a relationship with God. Jesus said that springs of living water will flow out of the hearts of all that believe in Him. Okay? This is the empowering and the fellowship of God's Spirit in us. It's a continuous stream of joy. Okay? It's continuous. It's a stream that's ever-flowing. It's not an emotion that... I'm feeling happy or I'm feeling sad. No, joy is something that we can have even in the midst of great suffering uh, or sickness. Consider the life of Annie Johnson Flint. Um, she lost both her parents by the time she was six years old. Uh, in her early 20s, she was struck by severe arthritis, finally ending up bedridden and almost unable to move. She then lost both her adopted parents within a few months of each other and she spent almost 40 years as a cripple in constant pain from the arthritis and from bed sores and unable to do the things that she loved. I want you to listen to parts of a poem that she wrote that was later adapted into a hymn. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions he addeth his mercy to multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. Fear not that your need shall exceed his provision. 
our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting availing. The Father, both you and your load, will upbear. His love has no limits, his grace has no measure, his power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. She lived an abundant life. Our next point is we need to remember that God is in control. God is completely sovereign. Psalm 135 verse 6 says that whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. We see in the book of Job that everything evil that the devil wants to do to Job, he can only do with God's permission. So we can therefore know that whatever hardship or tragedy we go through, it is not something that God has no control over, or it's not something that caught him by surprise. Our next point, I see there's just a mistake in your uh, notes. Just swap them around. It must be God restrains evil. Okay, God restrains evil. Now, we may not realize this, but if, we were, but if it were not for the grace of God, this world would have torn itself to shreds in its sinfulness long ago. Think about this. In 1945, the United States dropped a, a nuclear bomb on Hiroshima killing and injuring a total of about 135,000 people, giving radiation poisoning to thousands more, and just leaving in its wake massive destruction of property. But less than 20 years after that, the Soviet Union tested the king of bombs, a thermonuclear bomb 3,300 times more powerful than the first nuclear bomb. 3,300 times more powerful. And these weapons are found in silos all over the world, and yet, God has so far spared the world from nuclear war. In Genesis 20, verse 6, God tells Abimelech, I kept you from sinning against me. Psalm 19, verse 13, David asks God to keep him from committing presumptuous sin. The implication of that is that God wants to do that. God wants to help us. God wants to stand with us and help us not to sin as much as we would like to. But that also counts for unbelievers. God restrains unbelievers in the evil that they do. So we should always look at our circumstances with the knowledge that we have no idea how bad it could have been had God not restrained evil by His grace and stopped evil people from doing whatever they pleased all the time. So now that we have laid this foundation, we can ask why do bad things happen to good people? And there may be many more answers. I just picked out a few that I want to focus on this morning. But number one, because sin has consequences. Sin has consequences for the world and in our own lives. Because all of us can look at the world and see that it's not the way that it should be. The world is cursed because of man's sin. But God promises that one day he will come back, he will make it right, and he will bring complete restoration. It's interesting, God tells Adam in Genesis 3, verse 17 to 18, that cursed is the ground on account of you. In hard labor you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Is it not striking, therefore, that Jesus wore a crown of thorns on the cross? He took upon himself almost the very symbol of the fall. 
And therefore we know that while we live with the consequences of sin, the world will not always be the way that it is now. But sin also has consequences in our own lives. As an example, in 1 Kings 1, verse 5 to 6, King David's failure as a father to raise godly sons leads one of them uh, to start a rebellion. And this emboldens one of his other sons to also start a rebellion against him later on. And so both King David and the people of Jerusalem suffer because of his sin. So we may sometimes suffer because of our own sin or because of the sins of others. That is part of living in a fallen world and a broken world. But we can know that the world will not always be the way that it is now. Next point. Why do bad things happen to good people? Because God is interested in building our character. As one person said, he cares more, he cares more about our character than about our comfort. 1 Peter 1, verse 6 and 7 speaks of God using various trials in our lives to strengthen and purify our faith in Him. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, if for a little while, you have had to suffer various trials, in order that the genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tried by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so being tried by fire means that this is not an easy process. We should expect it to be difficult and painful and, and sometimes to feel like it's just too much to bear. But in a world where everything is fast, fast food, fast relief, quick cash, we all need to cultivate patience because God's timing is perfect, but ours is not. We will always try to get through pain as quickly as we can or to avoid it if at all possible. And so sometimes something as simple as a headache can cause us to question God's goodness. But this passage also shows us that uh, no suffering or trial or sickness that we go through is meaningless. It's not meaningless. There is a reason for it. it. It's an opportunity to grow in our faith and our trust in God. It also says that God is actively involved in our lives. He didn't create us and then leave us to our own devices. He is constantly working in the lives of believers and shaping us and making us more like His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, atheists love to use the presence of evil in the world uh, as an excuse to deny God's existence. But they rarely examine the uh, implications of their atheism. If you are an atheist, all evil is meaningless. All evil is meaningless because there's no reason behind the universe. There's no purpose. Man is an accident of evolution. We're not more special than any other creatures. And so if you suffer horrifically, well, it's literally tough luck. Only the strongest survive. Next point, we, we see that God is glorified in showing His justice and His judgment. Psalm 89 verse 14 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Would we really be able to trust God uh, if the Bible only talked about how God is a good judge and how He is just but it never shows us how he puts that into action. In Isaiah 11, verse 5 to 19, God says that he will send the Assyrians to conquer Israel as a judgment for their rebellion and their sins against him. And after that, he's going to judge the Assyrians 
for their sinful pride. So God, allows, God sometimes allows us to suffer at the hands of other people so that we might come to know Him as our just judge and we come to trust in His righteousness. It's also a guarantee that no sin or evil deed will go unpunished. No one gets away with anything before a holy God. Brother Doug said this morning in our session that all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There will be no escape. And we can take comfort in that, even if we receive a no compensation in this life for the evils done against us. And lastly, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, because God might have reasons that we cannot understand. Now you might say, Brother Louis, that's a cliche answer. Okay, but it's the truth. God famously tells us in Isaiah 55, verse 8 to 9, that my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. When we want to ask, why does God allow evil things to happen? We need to be aware of the fact that He is God and we are mortal human beings. Therefore, there are some sufferings and trials that we will never understand why they happen to us. We will never receive an, an explanation and it will remain a mystery. Let's take a, a radical example that could in, be entirely possible in God's omnipotence. But let's say it might, be it might be necessary for me to become fatally ill so that through my testimony, the doctor that treats me comes to salvation and through raising faithful children, his great-great-great-grandson becomes a preacher who spreads the good news of the gospel to thousands of people. Okay, I'll never understand that in my lifetime and it might not really um, make me feel any better that I have to go through this so that somebody I will never meet uh, comes to salvation. But there's no meaningless suffering. So nothing happens without a reason. And I think sometimes as human beings we think, well, if I can't understand what the reason is, then there must be no reason. But God is God and we are human beings. And we have to be humble enough this morning to admit that what, God's ask, what God asks of us is to be His obedient children, not to try and understand and figure out every mystery. So in summary, why do bad things happen to good people? Because sin has consequences. Because God is interested in building our character. Because He is glorified in showing His justice and judgment. And he may have reasons for allowing it that we cannot understand. So please understand me, the intention of this sermon is not to make light of your struggles and of your pain and of your uh, sufferings. It's not, to, it's not to say, okay, well, keep your chin up, back straight, and march on you go. Come, 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 no complaining. But we have to see these things through the lens of the gospel. We have to understand that God is always good, regardless of how we feel in a moment. I think there are times when all of us have to be like the man who fell at Jesus' feet and say, Lord, I believe. Please help me in my unbelief. We read in John 6 that many of those who claimed to be followers of Jesus left him because his teaching was not easy to hear. In John 6, verse 67 to 69, Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
So you might be going through trials and difficulties and feel like you want to turn away from God. But to what? To whom? Where can we turn? Jesus alone has the very words of eternal life. But not only that, we can bear the trials and hardships in our lives because the gospel shows us the ultimate and greatest act of love. Jesus laid down his life for his sheep. He laid his life down for his sheep. Back to John chapter 10, verse 15. Even as the Father knows me, so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. This I received this command from my Father. So Jesus died for you and for me. We might not always understand why evil things happen in our lives, but it cannot be. It cannot be because God doesn't love you. It cannot be because you need to do more to try and earn his love. Okay, because while we were still God's enemies, Jesus died in our place. And uh, Don Carson tells a story of a man who he met who was very eager to share with him an experience that he had. This man had a very rough childhood, and so even though he had become a Christian a while back, he was struggling with the idea that God really loves him. That is, until he had a life-changing experience when some Christian guru told him to picture yourself in your mother's womb as you are being born. And as you come out, imagine Jesus standing there all excited and Jesus taking you in, your, in his arms and hugging you tightly. The man burst out into tears and he said after that experience, he finally understood God's love for him. And Carson said to him, I'm very glad to hear that you have come to the realization of God's love for you, but I have to tell you that you have settled for second best. The man was rather shocked and he said, well, what do you mean? And Carson said, well, the place where God most clearly and perfectly demonstrated his love for us is in the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you cannot find his love there, then you are settling for second best. The cross where the sinless Son of God, the only truly innocent and good person, willingly took our sins upon himself. He took the beating and the flogging and the death that we deserve in our place so that we might live and we might have life in abundance. So in closing, why do bad things happen to good people? In the words of R.C. Sproul, that has only happened once in the history of the world, and he volunteered. Let us pray. Thank you, Father God, for the good news of the gospel, that you have provided rebel sinners with forgiveness, salvation, and love. That you've given us abundant life through your Son, Jesus Christ. May we never get over the wonder of the gospel. May we think about it and talk about it daily. May it change the way we see you, the way we see the world, the way we see ourselves. Thank you that you are in complete control and that we can trust you in our trials and in our pain, in our sickness and in our hardship. Please help us to take this wonderful message to a world that desperately needs to hear it. Amen.